You're listening to the Therapy for Women podcast with licensed therapists Amanda White, Fern Formel, and Gabby Salomon. Whether you're contemplating therapy for the first time, already in therapy, or reconsidering it, this podcast will empower you with tips, advice, and plenty of real talk so you can get the most out of your sessions. Welcome back to Therapy for Women, the podcast. We have Gabby, Fern, and myself here. How's everyone doing today? Doing good, I think. You know, we were just chatting that it's gray here in Philadelphia, but that's normal, right? Like, that's our our normal everyday lives. (laughs) At least in this time of year. (laughs) Yes. Overall, doing well. It's uh, early, but we've got this, guys. We. We can do mornings. <laughs> we're drinking we're drinking coffee to make up for it. Yes. 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 And we're excited today because you all have been asking us for an episode on attachment, and that is what we're going to be getting into today. Fern actually studied attachment in grad school, so she is very knowledgeable about it. Why don't you tell me about that? So in my program, right before you're about to graduate, you have to do a you know, some people call it like a capstone, you call it a senior project, whatever. And in our program, you have to pick a theory, you have to have a real like case study on it and apply that theory to that client case and then present it, present all the knowledge you've learned about that theory, about that experience, what worked, what didn't work, where are the shortcomings of the research on that theory, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, actually, I did mine on attachment-based family therapy, but by doing that, I actually had to do a lot of research on just general attachment theory. So mm-hmm. yes, I did. <laughs> I studied it quite a bit. <laughs> Is there a difference for him between attachment-based family therapy and regular attachment? It's pretty similar. <laughs> it is. It's. I. I mean, I'm. Sh- I'm sure there is someone out there that would be like, these are the exact differences between yeah. it, and there are certainly some differences. But essentially, what it is is like attachment-based family therapy is focused on family therapy and how to use the theory within that context. And attachment theory is just the theory itself and what attachment means and what it, that theory itself includes and the tenets of it. So it's just a different context, but it's more or less the same. So, I mean, when thinking about attachment theory, I think there's history in it that is important to know about, right? So attachment theory was developed by someone called John Bowlby. And he came from, oh, I'm I'm such a bad student therapist because I know he had a psychoanalytic view, but I'm totally blanking on when that was in the concept of therapy and theories. (laughs) But Essentially, what therapists who had a psychoanalytic view said was that people have a lot of repressed memories, dreams, Mm -hmm. experiences that are influencing what's happening in their life. So, I mean, and also psychoanalytical views. I could get into the whole history of it, and I (laughs) I promise I won't. (laughs) But uh, it was a big shift in therapy and what people thought it meant to you know help someone process what's going on with them mm-hmm. your your view of things and so i actually even pulled up they said it really well this article that i was re- rereading cuz i had to refresh my memory too <laughs> and it says psychoanalysis is a method of therapy in which the patient talks about experiences early childhood and dreams it mm-hmm. refers to both a theory and a type of therapy based on the belief that all people possess unconscious thoughts feelings desires and memories and that's said so much more eloquently than what i just described <laughs> But that's essentially what it is. So 
I give that context to say that's where John Bowlby was coming from, right? He was trying to figure out what about these thoughts, feelings, desires, these unconscious parts of ourselves, how do they affect how we show up in our relationships, right? Mm -hmm. And so he's credited as like the, the quote, father of attachment theory, but really it started with Freud, like way back in the day about like love and this and that. And again, we could go down a whole path of like, Freud and mothers and fathers, but let's not do that because that's a whole different conversation. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> so John Bowlby essentially starts researching how how does attachment affect how we show up as adults. And the, yeah. the number one basis that you have to think of when it comes to attachment theory is that the way we show up in our adult relationships is very much related to how our infant caregiver relationships were. Mm-hmm. Which is yeah, like the, the that's like the foundation of this entire theory. Yeah. Isn't there like four types of attachment, and there's like a test or something you take to figure out like which attachment style you are? Or am I making this up? No, no, that's true. <laughs> so there are a four a four attachment styles, or you know, four categories, four labels, mm-hmm. and you'll hear people use different names for children versus adults. Everyone mm. gets them confused. I feel like like you learn. I'll be honest, I get them confused all the time. I tend to just lean towards the adult ones because it's easier or even honestly, the like shorter name because <laughs> that's easier. So so the four attachment styles. So we have secure, which is like the ideal. That's the goal. That's what we're all trying to have. It's a secure attachment. Sometimes that one's called autonomous, but like I almost never hear anyone refer to it as autonomous. It's almost always just secure. And then we have ambivalent, and sometimes you'll hear people call it insecure ambivalent, anxious, preoccupied anxious, anxious resistant. (laughs) Mm. Most people will just say anxious attachment style, which is the easiest. Then we have avoidant. So sometimes you'll hear insecure avoidant or dismissive. Again, avoidant is usually the one that you hear most people say. And then we have the last one, which is disorganized. You'll hear disorganized. You could hear disoriented, disorganized. You'll hear fearful avoidant, unresolved, disorganized. It's the simplest one. They're very clear. So you may hear people use different names, but those are the four categories. And disorganized is kind of like, it's kind of erratic, right? Yeah, exactly. So the best way to explain it when you're talking about these attachment styles is how you view yourself versus how you view others. So when Mm. we think of a secure attachment, you have a positive view of yourself and you have a positive view of other people. Mm. When you have an anxious attachment style, you have a negative view of self, but a positive view of others. When you have an avoidant attachment style, you have a positive view of self and a negative view of others. And then with disorganized, you tend to oscillate between anxious and avoidant. So how people with a disorganized attachment show up in their social relationships and their social behavior can seem really uh, just confusing and ambiguous. The best way that it was taught to me and though I've always understood it is you can picture it as like a hot and cold kind of attachment. Mm. Um, I love you. I hate you. I love you. I hate you. And you'll be like, wait, you just told me, you know, you want to spend the rest of your life with me. And now you're telling me to get out of your house. (laughs) You know, that's obviously an extreme example. But and we also disorganized attachment is before anyone goes diagnosing, they're like X and it's like, well, they were very hot and cold. (laughs) Disorganized attachment is something that we see in individuals who usually have really complex trauma, particularly in childhood, Mm. people who experienced abuse, individuals that have borderline personality disorder tend to have disorganized attachment. 
it's not the most common attachment. Mm. People are much more likely to be have or to have an anxious attachment or an avoidant attachment. Disorganized really is not something that you you just throw around. So what is anxious avoidant then? Is that disorganized? Yeah, like it there's something attached to it. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this this goes back entirely to that infant caregiver relationship that I was talking about, right? Exactly what I just said about disorganized attachment. That comes from extreme trauma, usually really significant trauma in childhood. And so I'm guessing it would probably be a little helpful for me to go into how this can show up in childhood versus, you know, how it can show up in adulthood. So again, like when we're thinking about a secure attachment, we're thinking of that positive view of self and positive view of others, right? So in a caregiver style, you will usually see someone who's like consistent and nurturing and takes care of their child's needs and is, is a, is a present parent, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. And because of that, a child will want to stay close to that parent, right? They'll, they'll reach for that parent, but they're also okay being separated from that parent. There's, security. (laughs) Yeah. You know, hence the name in that relationship. And then therefore, typically, you'll see people in adult relationships with very few relationship issues. Now we'll get into how long you have a secure attachment versus an anxious attachment and all the different types of relationships, but we're not there yet. So that's a secure childhood attachment that translates to Mm -hmm. adulthood. Okay. Now with an anxious attachment, we'll see typically a parent that is wanting a child to meet their needs and is maybe unpredictable, Mm. right? So maybe to some degree like a parent who makes things about themselves, you know, a parent who is expecting their child to be the parent. Like you might see this in more parentified children. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And a parentified child, for those who don't know, it's someone who essentially had to be a parent far before they – were ever a parent if they ever even become a parent, <laughs> uh, right? Yeah, like they, the parent will use the child to, like they may vent, they may put the child in between their marital issues, they may use the child to take care, like overly rely on that child to take care of younger siblings or rely on that child for emotional support, any of those things. Yeah, they'd like put the child there as like their, like the person that they like bounce a lot of things off of, that yeah. they're talking to and oversharing a lot of times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So like think more friend than parent Mm -hmm. in this scenario. So the way that a child reacts to this type of parenting typically is that the child will cry and reach out and seek their caregiver before separation. Again, there's that insecurity there. And then usually – we see this in adulthood as partners who really worry that they're not loved by their partner. They're really upset when a relationship ends. I mean, it, it really is anxiety embodied in this relationship, right? There's usually a lack of confidence. Again, going back to that, I don't think my partner loves me. Am I lovable? Yeah. And then we have the avoidant attachment style. So in an infant caregiver role, you'll see the caregiver often being rejecting and disengaged. So this is just emotionally Mm. unavailable parent, a parent that we could say just like isn't warm and fuzzy towards their child, just isn't that kind of nurturing, loving parent that I think we all hope for a parent to be. Yeah. Yep. 
And so a child therefore learns, right, that their parent isn't available and tends to avoid the parent. They have very limited emotion shown. We'll talk about this study that also backs up attachment theory, but like if their parent leaves the room, they don't care. Parent comes back, they don't care. It's very, their parent was disengaged and so they kind of become disengaged with their parent or caregiver. Okay, like they're like kind of just cold. Yeah, that's the best way to think about it, right? Because you you have to think about all these attachment styles as insecure attachments, right? You are not secure in mm. your relationship and therefore you're just protecting yourself. That's what children – children are so, so smart in these ways that like yeah. they're like, oh, I'm experiencing this, so I'm going to adjust and adapt and show up this way instead, right? Yeah. They protect themselves without even consciously realizing it usually. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. So with – an avoidant adult, you usually mm-hmm. see like they won't depend on their partner. They usually mm-hmm. pull away when someone gets too close. This is kind of that cliche of someone will be like, I love you. And they're like, okay, we need to break up. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, nope, we're, we're too close. Not, yeah. not here, not happening. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're like, I love you. And you go, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And part of that, what you're saying, Fern, is it stems from when the child, right? It was like almost vulnerable. I mean, I guess this is all subconscious, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't safe for that child to necessarily like depend on the parent because the parent wasn't emotionally available or there. So it feels scary Mm -hmm. to depend on someone emotionally or be vulnerable with them. Yeah, absolutely. That's perfectly said. And so the last one, that disorganized attachment that we were talking about, right? This is that caregiver who can be really scary, but also reassuring Mm -hmm. at times. They're contradictory, Mm -hmm. right? So maybe uh, let's say an example of, I mean, I'm thinking about like an abusive relationship, right? Like a parent that screams in your face, but then wants you to come cuddle and watch a movie with them on the couch. Yeah. Right? That's really confusing and really scary to a child and and in these relationships too it's i'm not talking about a parent who like just loses it for a second and then says i'm so right. sorry right i shouldn't have gotten frustrated let's like let's have some quality time together and kind of repair that that break in the relationship i'm talking about like a parent where there's no recognition of the behavior and how yeah. it affected their child and how it kind of right it can become that cycle of abuse i think that sometimes we talk about in therapy where there's like that honeymoon stage where, you know, things are great and maybe that parent is overly buying the child something or trying to get their affection, right? And then snaps and freaks out and does something different and it kind of continues and becomes this whole cycle. Yeah, absolutely. And and the way that a child reacts to that type of parenting is sadly, and it does, it makes me really sad when I think about it, right? It's a a child that is usually so confused and just trying to maybe regulate themselves. So sometimes with these kids, they'll react like they'll close their eyes at you. They'll freeze Mm -hmm. up. They write that survival flight flight, or freeze. You'll even sometimes see like self-stimming with these children, right? So those repeated body movements or I, I think it's usually typically body movements or maybe like with an object. Yeah, it's like rocking, sometimes flapping, fidgeting. Yeah. Yeah. These could even be kids, right, that like hit themselves over and over and over again, Mm. right? So it it is really sad to to see how these kids develop from that kind of caregiving. And then the way that it shows up as adults, right, like they could maybe fear intimacy. They might have 
really intense anger with confrontation. They might have very little empathy for other people, right? They're kind Mm -hmm. of showing up. One, as I mentioned earlier, that confusing between anxious and avoidant, but they're also showing up in the way maybe a little bit that their parents showed up too. And that's how, right, it becomes when we talk about breaking the cycle and how the cycle of trauma continues through families. I feel like this is a huge way that that, you know, we parent how our how our parents parented us in some ways, even if we want to be different. I think it's really interesting how your hardwiring just kind of gets revealed sometimes and you do things that you didn't, you know, that you don't even want to do sometimes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I'm personally a big believer that your attachment style changes, right? You're, yes. Just because, let's say you, just because you grew up with disorganized with developing Mm -hmm. a disorganized attachment does not mean that you will have a disorganized attachment for the rest of your life. Yeah. What you do want to pay attention to is how if you find yourself realizing like, oh, I think I might have this attachment style. And yes, Gabby, there are quizzes everywhere. There are tests everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) There's a really great book that I will give at the end that we can talk about as well. But if you find yourself having a certain attachment, it's your responsibility to work on that right? Yeah. And how you show up, I personally find how you show up in your relationships with your attachment style also sometimes has a lot to do with the other person and how the two of you Mm. come together, right? So Mm. maybe you've had a relationship in the past where you did have a secure relationship. You had a secure attachment to that person. They showed up in the ways that you needed them to show up and you showed up in the same way. But let's say you get into a a really unhealthy relationship, not by any fault of your own. That's just how it develops. Your Mm -hmm. attachment style might shift in that specific relationship, right? Maybe you become someone who's super anxious. Maybe you thought you were in a secure relationship and then you find out your partner cheats on you Mm. all the time. That's going to make anyone have more of an anxious attachment style in that relationship. So I personally believe that like we might have a foundational attachment style, but I I do believe that it changes depending on the type of relationship that you're in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think also it's just interesting to see. I think in my experience and my work with clients, I think we can also have different types of attachment. It feels like compared to, right, like romantic relationships versus friendships, depending on what our history or experience. Like I'll speak for myself because I moved so much growing up. I tend to have a lot more anxious attachment, it feels like, with friendships Mm. because those were really insecure growing up compared to romantic relationships I just felt a bit more secure Mm -hmm. in, which is like interesting how I think that can kind of show up too. And again, like you said, Fern, I think it's important to recognize that if you have like, if you end up in a healthy relationship, whether it's friendship, romantic, you know, whatever, I think that how that other person shows up matters too. Mm -hmm. But I think that's where some of the baseline stuff you're talking about can show up also. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we, like as if I did the research. (laughs) (laughs) So there was a psychologist, Mary Ainsworth, uh, in the 70s, who did a study, which honestly, if anyone's taken a psychology course, they probably know about this study. It was this strange situation, stranger situation, And essentially they, you know, researched this theory about attachment and the way that they did it was there would be a caregiver and a child and they'd be alone in a room, Mm -hmm. let the child explore the room, hang out, get comfortable. A stranger comes into the room, talks to the parent, talks to the child, hangs out a little bit, and then the parent quietly leaves the room. 
you see how the child reacts to their parent leaving. And then their parent eventually comes back and tries to comfort the child. And you see how the child reacts then. So that's how they kind of addressed and researched this attachment theory in this research study specifically. So for example, with secure kids, right, they would be like, okay, like mom, mom or dad or whoever left. Yeah. Maybe they get a little upset, but they're easily comforted and they're, they easily calm down. And when, you know, caregiver comes back, child is like, oh, they're back. Again, maybe they are a little like, oh, wait, you're back. Uh, What? (laughs) But again, they're easily like soothed and easily reconnect Mm -hmm. with their parent and don't really think twice about it. Yeah. But an anxiously attached child, that's where we kind of see where we talk a lot about like separation anxiety for kids, right? Yeah. It is a child that, you know, really has a really hard time. Their parent leaves. Parent leaves. They are not able to be soothed. They are so upset and they really don't calm down until their parent comes back into the room and, you know, soothes them and comforts them. So like, like, is that then indicative of like separation anxiety too? See, this is the hard thing, right? Because we could also talk like developmentally, right? About how, for instance, if a baby spends 24-7 with you, they're going to be attached to you. Like we could go down a whole rabbit hole. You hear me say this all the time. (laughs) You say it all the time. (laughs) We could go down a whole rabbit hole about like early development and if it's quote normal for your kid to get upset when you like leave them. In this case, the study was for children 12 to 18 months. So that is – the age sometimes where you will see separation anxiety in general. So it's hard It's hard to say if having separation anxiety is indicative of an anxious attachment or if it's just a developmental stage. Yeah. Well, I think it's also hard, like, I mean, I'm listening to this obviously as a parent and I'm thinking of other parents is like, like you were saying, Bren, like kids also go through phases. So I think mm-hmm. it can be, you can panic and be like, oh my gosh, my child is having such a hard time, right? Like going to school or they're starting daycare or whatever, right? Or they're going to their grandparents' house. They're freaking out. Does this mean that my child has anxious attachment? What would you say to those parents who are listening from that lens? I would say to take what you hear about therapy theories with a grain of salt. (laughs) That there is merit to them and they are important to pay attention to, but they are not the end-all be-all. And think about your situation, right? Like even even kids that go to daycare at three months still can experience separation anxiety a year later. So if your child is experiencing what you think might be an anxious attachment style, one, I would be reflective of how are you showing up as a caregiver, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be really reflective of like, you know, am I engaged with my child? Uh, am I taking care of their needs? And I'm not talking like they're fed, bathed, and clothed. I'm talking mm-hmm. about if my child is like, you know, play blocks with me. <laughs> yeah. Do you or do you sit on your phone and yeah. do that instead? Like, and I mean, that's, again, one example. But yeah. There's so many reasons like why we don't engage with our children all the time. Yeah. I was going to say like I think some of this too is a, is nuanced, right? Like mm-hmm. and depends on what's going on in the also in the environment of the family too, right? Like if there's changes, if there's new stuff going on, if somebody's sick, if there's a job change, like all these things like impact kids and as much as we want to say like oh they're little, they don't realize they do. Yeah. yeah. And and 
keeping that in mind, exactly what you just said, Gabby, is that there are some things that we like can't control, right? Right. So let's say something, obviously parents who get divorced are always worried about how it's going to affect their children. Some Mm -hmm. children come out of divorce and are like, whatever, like, okay. And, And then one parent might be so secure and wonderful and so present and so engaged. But if the other parent isn't, your child may develop a non-secure and insecure attachment style. And sometimes there's nothing we can do about that. Gabby, as you said, maybe someone's sick. Like there are just life circumstances. All you can do is, and I say this to parents all the time, all you can do is like your best. If you're looking for some extra support with your mental health, now is a great time to see a therapist. Our practice has therapists located in 24 states across the country, and we have three local offices in the Philadelphia area. Don't let sad girl summer become depressed girl fall. Book your appointment now. And there's so much power in repair, I think, too, right? Is like I think it's easy to just kind of be like, oh, my God, my child is messed up. You know, I've messed them up. There's nothing else to do. And I think that there are always places to repair. There's always – like like we talked about, that's where it's like attachment can also, I think, like be healed and be worked on and your child isn't doomed just because they're showing – some anxious <laughs> signs or avoidant signs or things like that too. Yeah, absolutely. And thinking about that, that's one of the things I talk primarily with my parent clients about is yeah. it's okay for you to lose your stuff sometimes. Like it's okay for you to maybe not show up as your favorite self. Yeah. But what's 10 times more important is how you repair it after mm. you lose it, right? So we get frustrated. We lose our cool we get overstimulated, we get dysregulated. Again, it's okay to lose it. It's much more important that you show your kids empathy and validation and teach them how what it means to apologize and really sincerely yeah. apologize and and how to just do those those little activities or those little interactions where it really mm-hmm. fosters that repair and it fosters that security that we're talking about. That's mm-hmm. so much more important than the fact that maybe you weren't your favorite parent self that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I could see that. With the avoidant attachment, parent leaves, avoidant child may not even notice. Parent comes back, yeah. avoidant child might not even notice. Like they yeah. might not react. They might not care. They're like, oh, cool. They're back. Whatever. Like yeah. it's it's a very, again, disengaged kind of reaction to their parent. Now, if I'm correct, I don't believe this study covered disorganized attachment. I believe they only did secure, anxious, and avoidant. But again, it it just shows us how these different attachment styles showed up and even how these children reacted to their parents, which with a researcher hat, it's really interesting. As child and family therapists, it's like, oh, I should pay attention to that. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it it was a very helpful study, I think, that they did. And I think it really showed just, again, how these attachment styles show up in even the simplest of ways, like a parent leaving and coming back in a room after a while. This kind of all is nuanced and kids develop at different stages and different rates. So it's, there isn't just a specific, you know, clear cut way that this is what this means for sure for your child because it it's nuanced and depends on them also. Yeah, absolutely. And something to think about too, as far as just general attachment theory and what John Bowlby thought. So he had four characteristics of attachment that I think are mm. important to discuss and keep in mind when you're talking about this. So yeah. 
The four are proximity maintenance, safe haven, Mm -hmm. secure base, and separation distress. So like, what does all that mean? (laughs) So proximity maintenance is the desire to be near the people we're attached to. Mm. Safe haven is returning to your caregiver or attachment figure for comfort and safety in the face of like a threat or danger. Yeah. Yeah. A secure base is that the caregiver acts as a base of security, right? And then the child can explore around them, right? Yeah. Like let's say, you know, a kid will go to a playground. If their parents may be a secure base for them, child will go, you know, play on the playground, but maybe they come back and just like check in with the parent or like yeah. look before they do the monkey bars or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like that's a form of a secure base. And the separation distress is that anxiety piece, right? The anxiety that occurs when that caregiver isn't there anymore, right? Mm -hmm. So these are all the things that we're thinking about when it comes to attachment. And they're all indicative, right? So if you take an an anxiously attached child, you're going to look at, you know, do they want to be near the person that they're attached to? Yes, very much so, right? They have high proximity (laughs) maintenance. You know, they very much see their attachment figure as someone for like comfort and safety, which is interesting because obviously we talked about this as someone who maybe doesn't meet their emotional needs, but right. They're going to very much see them as a secure base or really want them to be the secure base. So that might mean extra checking in, extra reassurance, extra validation Mm -hmm. in those things. And then obviously with separation distress, an anxiously attached child would have a really high distress level when it comes to separation because- they're worried their parent isn't going to come back or isn't going to be reassuring or isn't going to show them love or things like that. So that's just an example of those four characteristics that I think are important to pay attention to. I guess what's coming up for me is like, how does this then bleed into like adulthood? Mm. Yeah. So again, within this theory, essentially what they say is, again, how these relationships were in your infant caregiver is very likely how you're going to show up in your romantic adult relationships. Now, what Mm. we just discussed a second ago, right, is that we all kind of were on the same page that it's not just really romantic relationships, right? Yeah. This is, yes, this is parent-child relationships, but this is also friendships. This is other family relationships. This is sibling relationships. This is romantic relationships. But mainly when people are talking about attachment theory, they're talking about adult romantic relationships. Yeah, I guess like what is coming up for me is like I'm thinking about like even strained relationships with parents like as we're in our adult years and how sometimes we go back to a lot of the same behaviors that we had when we were kids, even though we're grown adults and how we kind of slip back into patterns that like our 16 year old selves would get into. Mm-hmm. I think there's definitely that phenomenon that, you know, they say like when you get together with your family for the holidays, everyone slips back <laughs> into their old roles. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> so <laughs> I think there's something there <laughs> to pay attention to. So I can use myself as an example, right? I had really, I mean, I have really great parents. I have really positive relationships with them, but I also recognize that I lean more on the anxiously attached side these days. When I was younger, I probably leaned more on the avoidant attachment. I was very like, I don't need anybody. I like, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I don't need to be attached to anybody. I'm good on my own. I'm independent. Let's not get, let anyone get too close. And as I became an adult and I was experiencing what it felt to and I'll explain this within the context of my parents because I guarantee my mother's going to listen to this and <laughs> have some questions. <laughs> but <laughs> I 
have to tell my parents. I'm like, please, no, you cannot listen. I was like, please don't listen to episode two. <laughs> like, just, just, just don't do it. But, you know, as I was getting older and I was experiencing what it meant to be in romantic relationships and dating, I think, some of the people that I dated, I know exactly what it was like to switch to more of an anxious attachment style. And now I feel like I very much have a secure relationship attachment style, right? At least in my you know, romantic relationship right now. But I know that I still can lean on the like anxious side of things. So when I think about myself and I think about like, well, you know, how did this come to be, right? How did I develop this? And I'm the youngest of six, which I think explains maybe more of the avoidant attachment style. Mm Yeah. Um, right. Being very independent, very like, nope, I don't need anybody. I take care of myself. Like, you know, I'm very close to my family. So it's like, mm-hmm. I think this is what people have to realize, right? Is like you can have really positive relationships and be very close to your family and still mm. have an insecure attachment style. And this goes back to what we were, what you said, Gabby, about it's not always like, quote, someone's fault that mm-hmm. you, yes. you developed and it's a different attachment style. So I think about like, Okay, my birth order, right? Youngest of six. <laughs> I think about the fact that my dad worked a lot, right? My mom worked in the home. Not always, like sometimes she worked outside of the home, but for a lot of my childhood, she worked within the home. But my dad worked a lot. There was a year where he didn't even work here. He worked over in Mexico. Like, so he was gone. So when mm, I think yeah. back to him, I'm like, oh, like my dad was a great dad, but he also wasn't physically around a lot. Like he tried his best. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I think about that. And then I think about as I got older and I'm certainly not blaming my parents' divorce on my attachment style, but, you know, that I'm sure it did affect me in that way. And just, you know, how that whole experience was for me. When I think back to it, I'm like, oh, that would kind of make sense for what my experience was with that and how I now show up as a slightly more anxiously attached person. Yeah. And I am currently in a long-term super healing relationship that I think has created a really secure attachment style for me. So long story long to answer your question, Gabby, (laughs) is that yes, that attachment style can change and it can change from that 16 year old, you know, relationship that you had as a teenager to being 30 something and having that relationship. And as you've heard me say many times, nothing happens in a vacuum, right? So you might be working on yourself, right? You might be in therapy or doing your own work else, like in other ways. And if your parent is still showing up or your caregiver is still showing up in the same ways, it's going to be really hard to not go back to that 16-year-old self when you're in a space with them. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like you can do so much work and – if another person in that relationship isn't, it's going to be really hard not to regress, I would say. Yeah, and just fall back into that pattern that you're used to kind of carrying out yeah. and playing out for sure. One thing I wanted to ask you, Fern, is what are what do you think some of the biggest misconceptions about attachment are, whether that's like on the internet or through social media? I think the one that I see a lot is what we've already kind of touched on, that your attachment style is set in stone and it cannot be changed or it is only one category. Like it can't be different with <laughs> different people. Like I think you could see these studies and be like, okay, Fern, you had anxious attachment growing up. You will always have, or you had avoidant attachment. You'll always have avoidant Mm -hmm. attachment. Those are some of the ones I was thinking 
But I also think there is just such a strong media narrative of, right, like the anxious woman and the avoidant man. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So I, I agree with you. I think the biggest misconception I see is that people think it's set in stone, that if you show up one way, it's going to be that way forever. People love their labels to some degree. And I think it's because it gives yeah. us, again, reassurance and validation. But I don't think it always helps personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can get stuck in them. Yeah. I think we can get stuck in them and, and kind of put ourselves in a box unintentionally. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. But I also agree – Yes, there's this huge narrative, and this is very, like, heteronormative, right, of anxious woman and the avoidant man. Well, I was going to ask you, too, Mm -hmm. like, is there something – because we hear a lot online that, like, oh, anxious people are attracted to avoidant people and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Is that true, do you think, or is there some degree of truth to it? Slash, if so, why? Because it does seem very counterintuitive Mm -hmm. that an anxious person – would be attracted to an avoidant person. It's definitely true to some degree. And think about it this way. An avoidant person takes a step back. An anxious person takes a step forward. Step back, step forward, step back, step forward. And so it's this constant pursuer distancer. That's the term we used. So, right, there's all – the anxious person is the pursuer – the avoidant person is the mm. distancer. And while I'm sure we'd much rather not have to chase somebody, one, yeah. I think there's a lot of things that we're taught that like the chase quote is normal. Yes. Quote. <laughs> and exciting and attractive. Yeah. Right. Exciting, yes. attractive. I mean, even think of like when you're young and you're taught something like, oh, they made fun of you. It's because they like you. Yeah. So harmful, really. So harmful. <laughs> Because then you just let people like make fun of you and you're like, oh, they like me. No, they don't. Or we shouldn't, even if they do, that doesn't mean that you should like You should let them make fun of you. Like it's called stand up for yourself. Be like, I don't like you saying that. Yeah. I think of, (laughs) I just watched Miss Congeniality for the first time in a while. And I think about the opening scene there where she's, she like helps the little boy who's getting picked on and she's like, I like you. And he's like, well, I don't like you. Everyone thinks the girl needs to stand up for me. And she punches him in the face. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, I think that's avoidant. <laughs> I, yeah. I think Aggressive. she had secure and then it quickly went to an avoidant yeah. attachment style. But <laughs> so there very much is this, we, we do, we see it commonly, especially in couples therapy where someone has an anxious attachment, an avoidant attachment style. Because you have to think of it this way. If you have two people that are together that have an avoidant attachment style, they're never actually going mm. to connect and like create an in-depth long-term relationship because they're both like, nope, we don't need each right. other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You do see two anxiously attached people together at times. Mm. And that- codependency. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You see a lot of codependency. You see a lot of insecurity, right? Like those are the mm. couples that sometimes you'll see where they both, you know, there's a lot of rules around their relationships mm. mm-hmm. and what is okay and isn't okay. and But it has to come from both people if they're both anxiously attached, right? So, and those can just be exhausting relationships, I would say. Yeah. Right. And then often, sometimes, right, you'll see people in secure relationships with other people that have secure attachment styles, or you'll see someone that has a secure attachment style with someone who has an avoidant or an anxious. And sometimes mm-hmm. it changes and morphs to too, too secure. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it doesn't work out, right? So for instance, maybe you see someone who's what, that has a secure attachment style with someone who has an insecure attachment style, uh, like anxiety. And maybe that anxiously attached person is constantly like, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And that secure yeah. person is like, oh my God, yes, I love you. Yes. And 
and maybe they get tired of it. And so they're like, I can't take this anymore. And they end the relationship. So there's a reason why an anxiously attached person and an avoidantly attached person mesh so well together, right? Because Mm, they're kind of like a yin and a yang in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even though, as you said, like intuitively, it doesn't really make sense. Like, why would you want to be with someone who's not giving you what you need need or or want? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It it works because, unfortunately, they are more for anxiously attached people. They are getting the same performance, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. They're getting the same experience that they had as a child, right? Someone who is just an arm's length away. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so we could go into a whole conversation also about like a Mago theory. <laughs> but yeah, it's familiar, right? And you've heard me say it time and time again that just because it's familiar and feels safe doesn't mean it's actually healthy for you. Yeah. I get the anxious attached kids having avoidant parents. Does that mm-hmm. happen opposite where the avoidant kids had anxious parents? I mean, maybe like helicopterish pair. I mean, I guess I know avoidant typically is more of like a response to the parents who kind of ignore them. Yeah. But I could see some avoidance from helicopter parents. Yeah, I'm trying to think about that. I will say that I I don't know the ultimate truest answer to that. What yeah. I would say is I could see parents, like you said, maybe like more of like a helicopter parent, a very anxious parent or parents, you know, being smothering. Yeah, and yeah. therefore their child, their child is rejecting. Yes, I could yeah. see that. How often I see it, I couldn't say. Yeah. As, especially because, as you said, right when we think of avoidant attachment, we're thinking of parents who are rejecting and disengaged. So it's a good question. I don't have a full answer to that. We also may not have studies on it. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing about attachment theory, right, is that it's not the most heavily researched theory Mm. ever, right? Like, yes, there's research, but there are theories that have 10 times more research than attachment does. So that's kind of where I also go with taking it with a grain of salt. Yeah, that's good to know. Yeah, if we're we're going into my old like research and analytics class (laughs) experience, you know, the research not only is limited, but it's also, you know, smaller population sizes. My, I'm going to go ahead and just guess that they're probably mostly white hetero families. (laughs) So there's, you know, things to think about there when considering the research around all of this. But thinking about, going back to thinking about an anxious and an avoidant relationship, the thing that we have to keep in mind, right, is that all individuals at the end of the day want to feel loved, right? They want to feel loved and cared for and reassured and goes back to that word of secure, right? Mm -hmm. So while an avoidant partner might keep you at arm's length and say, like, I don't need them, you're getting too close, that's really fear-based, right? So in a way, an avoidant partner having an anxiously attached partner, even if it scares them, right? Even if they're like, no, you're too close. This is uncomfortable for me. This doesn't feel familiar, right? Everyone likes to feel loved. And so they may really be enjoying having a partner who's like, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Love me. Love me. Love Mm -hmm. me. Even if they're like, no, no, no. I don't like this. This feels unsafe. I don't know if this feels unfamiliar, I don't know what to do with this, right? I don't know what to do with this because I haven't experienced this. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to go with my go-to, which was learn to keep people over here. Mm. But if you think about it, like it feels, again, it feels good to have someone pursue you. It feels good to have someone that is, is there. Now, again, you want to think about people that are overbearing and all these things. There's (laughs) Let's say like love bombing popped into my brain. Yeah. So 
<laughs> right. There's there are things to absolutely consider. Like love bombing is a is a huge thing to think about. But if we're not talking about extreme circumstances, it's more so that avoidant people don't know what it feels to have security and and love and acceptance. And so they might reject it even if they want it and it feels good, but it feels uncomfortable, right? It's kind of like yeah. When someone has anxiety their whole life and starts medication and they're like, oh, this feels weird because they mm-hmm. don't know yeah. what it's like to not be anxious. Totally. Totally. Well, my last question, Fern, is if someone is like, okay, I'm realizing that maybe I have avoided or anxious attachment and I want to work on it. If they aren't ready to do therapy, what are some of – I mean, number one, I think therapy can help for sure with this. But if they aren't ready to do therapy, what are some of the things that you would recommend? One, there's a great book that I really like called Attached. I forget who it's by at the moment. We can put it in the show notes, but it's a white book with like what looks like magnet hearts. It's got red lettering and black lettering. It says Attached. If I remember correctly, it's been a little while since I've reread the book, but I don't believe they go over disorganized attachment too much, right? I believe they just do secure, anxious, and avoidant. Um, I think that's a good place to start just to get some more information and see how it can show up and how to work on it. You know- If you are realizing that you're showing up a certain way in your relationships and it's not working for you, right? You're you're saying, I don't like this, this doesn't feel good, I don't I don't want to act this way. I mean, obviously my first recommendation is go to therapy, but your question was (laughs) if they don't want to go to therapy. (laughs) Honestly, I would probably say first you need to pinpoint what's not working for you. How are you showing up that's not working for your relationship, right? I would also think about your needs, right? People Mm. are often really quick to say, I need to change. I need to like fix things. When in -hmm. relationships, it takes two a lot of the time, right? So I would also maybe like check in with yourself about what isn't working in your relationship on your partner's end, right? Mm -hmm. So for example – it's a really slippery soap of saying, well, my partner gets upset with me every time I ask what time they're coming home. So I need to just not mm. ask anymore. And yeah. the question is like, why Why does that upset your partner? Like how yeah. are they not showing up for you in the ways that you need as well, right? Yeah. So there's that identification piece, right, of this isn't working for me. There's the second identification piece of what isn't working for you, right? Like what parts of you aren't working, what parts of your partner aren't working or your or your mm-hmm. friend or your family member or again, whoever. And then you're going to have to get really uncomfortable <laughs> and try some different approaches, right? Mm, yeah. I'm a big fan of communicating with the people that you're having a struggle with. And now granted, I know not everyone is a safe space to have these conversations with. But if yeah. it's someone that you feel like you can talk to, again, I'm thinking more in the context of a partner ideally, saying to them, hey, I notice every time I ask you this, you get really upset. I'm asking because it's coming from a place of blank, right? Anxiety, but yeah. like, let's get a little deeper than that, right? Like, I'm worried that I'm not going to know that you come home at five and I'm usually in charge of dinner. And so mm. what if dinner's not ready when you come home? And I mean, again, that's a whole anxiety <laughs> snowball right there. Yeah. But you could potentially talk to your partner and say – it would really help me if you could just let me know what your schedule is mm-hmm. so I can mm-hmm. make sure that I can just have that done and maybe I won't have to keep asking you, right? And maybe yeah. your partner comes back and says, I totally get that. But it also, yeah, it's really frustrating when you ask me because I feel like I'm on a leash. I feel like I have to be home at mm. that time or you're going to get upset with me. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So communicating what's not working and where it's coming from and and what you need instead would be my recommendation. Yeah. But that's hard. It can be really uncomfortable and you really have to do some deep self-reflection to figure out what's not working. Yeah. yeah. The last thing I will say is it doesn't hurt also to try to figure out where this attachment developed, right? So I shared my story mm-hmm. earlier mm-hmm. about my yeah. own self-reflections. So it doesn't hurt to say, how was I attached to my parents growing up? You know, did I care if Mm -hmm. they were around? Was I sad when they, you know, left? Was I okay either way? You know, and how did that look transitioning into elementary school age? How did that transition to middle school, to high school, to young adulthood, to middle adulthood, and so on and so forth? Because the the tagline of this, right, is that it can change. It's not necessarily going to be stagnant. So I know that's a long-winded answer. Essentially just yeah, telling people yeah. to be self-reflective. <laughs> and that's why like it, it is really helpful to go to therapy because you can have someone to help you navigate all of this and help you kind of figure out what is you, what is them, and give you an objective kind of assessment. Mm-hmm. What was, I was like, as I was hearing this, it kind of made me think about that book, I Want This to Work by Liz Earnshaw, right? Like she goes into this and like, I think yeah. even they even like preface it. it's like this can be done as a couple or individually mm-hmm. right so you can yeah. like work on yourself either like in your couple's work together through the book or like individually try to figure out stuff so then when you are ready to get into a relationship you figured something out <laughs> yeah and if you're single it's probably a good place to like reflect on what like what your pattern is what types of people you date is there a pattern mm-hmm. yeah. with any of that that could give you some insight as well And to your point also earlier, Amanda, right? Like you can also look at your other relationships, right? How do you show up with your caregivers? How do you show up with your siblings? How do you show up with your friends? How do you even show up with like teachers or authority figures and things Mm -hmm. like that? Like we have relationships everywhere, right? It doesn't just have to be romantic. And so to your, again, to your point earlier, you could show up one way with friends, show up totally different with siblings and show up totally different with your parents. And when we're talking about self-reflection, we try to stay away from the question why, right? But in this case, why are you showing up differently, right? What is it about your parent-child relationship that's causing you to react a certain way, right? What is it about your yeah. sibling sibling relationship that's causing you to show up in a certain way? You know, same thing with yeah. your friends, right? Because maybe you're really confident. And that's, again, last thing I will say because <laughs> I always have mm-hmm. a lot. The one also major tenant of attachment style is that mm-hmm. Bulby – was really, really sure that attachment came from confidence. Parents mm. creating confidence in their kids, their kids feeling confident and secure to explore the world around them, really instilling confidence. So if you're not showing up confident in your relationships, why is that? Love it. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Vern. This was such a great episode. Yeah. So informative. Yeah. Sometimes it reminds me like why I miss school, right? When we just sit yeah. in pictures and Ugh, get all the I information. I say it all the time. I'm like, I'd go for my PhD if I needed it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks everyone for listening. We will be back in two weeks and we'll see you then. All right. Bye everybody. Bye everybody. Thanks for listening to the Therapy for Women podcast. To suggest a topic, submit a question, or find a qualified therapist, visit therapyforwomencenter.com.